are worshiping someone or something today. If it is not true biblical worship solely offered to the true God, then you are engaged in what the Bible calls idolatry. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part two of Tear Down Every Idol. Do you know that there's a serious danger of God's people embracing idols? The idolatry Scripture addresses is not merely of people falling down in front of a carved piece of wood or metal. As you'll discover today, the real problem of idolatry is that it is much more insidious and hidden. Can individuals who claim to be Christians worship idols? Surely believers understand the hidden nature of idolatry, don't they? Well, as Tom will teach today, nearly all of the passages about idolatry in the Scriptures have in common just how powerful the influence of worshiping something other than God has on the people of God. Keep all that in mind as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Do you realize that only 17% of the world's population would call themselves non-religious? Are they all worshiping the true God? Absolutely not. And what about that 17%? Are they simply not worshiping? Not on your life, because they are hardwired by God to worship. You say, okay, but that's the world. Yeah, I understand that, but we don't worship idols in America. Well, first of all, you need to get in touch with reality, because when I was at Grace Church, for example, I remember our very first Sunday back in 1987 out in Los Angeles. We were coming down the freeway, and we pull off the freeway, and we knew the church was nearby, and sitting right there was this large, attractive building. And I looked at Sheila and I said, this is wonderful. Just down the street from Grace Church is a great Chinese restaurant. Well, in fact, it happens to be the largest Buddhist temple in the Western Hemisphere. So even that kind of idolatry happens here. Some people, however, think, well, you know, the real problem with our culture is not that we are superstitiously religious, that we worship idols, but that we're just too secular. That's our real problem. We're just a secular country. Listen, at the same time that our modern world congratulates itself on its criticism of the gods of wood and stone, it creates its own pantheon of idols just as prolifically. Understand this. Idolatry is as great a problem today in America, here in this city, and even here in this church as it has ever been. By the time we're done over the next few Sundays, I think you will see your Bible and our culture in a whole new light. Now today, in the time that we have remaining, I just want to give you the biblical history of idolatry. The biblical history of idolatry. I want to briefly trace its history through human history. Now this just isn't just to give you information or facts. Stay with me. There's a very important reason with immense ramifications. There was probably idolatry in the world that perished with the flood, but we're not told of it. 
We're told that every imagination of the hearts of men was only evil continually. And in Galatians 5, Paul tells us that idolatry is part of the work of the flesh. Certainly that world that perished was guilty of that. And so it's, we have every reason to believe there was idolatry then. But we have no record of it in Scripture. We do know that the ancient world after the flood was primarily polytheistic. You learned in your history classes about the Sumerians, what many scholars believe was the very first civilization about the mid-4th century B.C. The Sumerians had hundreds of deities in their pantheon of idolatry. They were polytheists. What about the Mesopotamians there in the Fertile Crescent, that area of the world that birthed humanity where undoubtedly the Garden of Eden was? They too were polytheistic. The Egyptians, polytheistic. Now how could this be? So shortly after the flood, so shortly after God started over. Well, next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the source of idolatry. Why all these cultures, so soon after creation, were idolaters. But when we turn to the pages of Scripture, our first biblical encounter from a chronological time frame with idolatry is with Abraham and his family. Turn back to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, the end of the chapter, verse 31, we read, Sarah took Abram, or excuse me, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees in order to enter the land of Canaan. Verse 1 of chapter 12 gives us God's command to them. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now here in Genesis, we're not told about Abram's spiritual background. But elsewhere, we learn that before his conversion, his life was filled with idolatry. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and they served other gods. There were some 1,500 gods in the Mesopotamian pantheon where Ur was. Abraham's family probably worshipped the Mesopotamian moon god, Sin, God in his marvelous sovereign grace, reaches down in the midst of that pagan idolatry and saves Abraham, sets him apart for himself. And although Abram put away his idols and worshiped the true God, his family brought its idolatry with it. Idolatry is first mentioned after Abraham's call in Genesis 31, verse 19, when Rachel steals the household gods. Now it may be that she had an affinity for the gods of her childhood, or it may be, as some believe, that these gods were tied to fertility, and she worshipped that her entire life, as you know, in the biblical account. Or it may be, as some think, that these gods were all about financial prosperity, because whoever owned them, whoever had them upon the father's death, was the main inheritance. Regardless, it doesn't matter they were there, they were present in the family. In fact, when Jacob returns to Canaan, eight to 
to 10 years after he returns to Canaan, fleeing from his brother, Jacob, in Genesis 35, has to urge members of his household to put away their idols. But without question, it was during the 400 years in Egypt that Israel became most tainted with idolatry. Jacob, you remember, with 70, goes down into Egypt. They leave two million people, and they took their idols with them. They brought it with them out of Egypt. Joshua 24, 14, Joshua says, Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. In Ezekiel, in fact, turn back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel reminds the people that they never got away from Egyptian idolatry. Ezekiel 20, verse 7, God says, I said to them, that is to those who left Egypt, Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So you can see that God's people continued to collect idols. They brought them from Ur. Now they collect them in Egypt and bring them with them. You see it, of course, in Exodus 32, where they erect the golden calf. Even after 40 years of wilderness wandering, even after all of those 21 and older died and a new generation came along, just before they enter the promised land, the people of Israel joined the Moabites in worshiping Baal. You can see it in Numbers 25. But without question, when you look at the idolatry of Israel, the primary influence in Israel toward idolatry came when they entered the promised land from a group of people called the Canaanites. You're familiar, if you're a Bible student at all, with the Canaanites. Their worship is called Baal worship, after their primary god, the god or lord, Baal means lord, of the storm and the rain. Now, when you look at the Canaanite religion, and I think it's important that we do for a moment, because you need to understand the context in which these people lived. The places of worship for Baal were elaborate temples, but there was no central sanctuary. So altars could be set up to Baal on virtually every hill. These places came to be known as the high places. High places were simply altars that were originally located on or near the summit of hills, in order to be closer to the gods. Later, they were even built in valleys and in towns, according to Jeremiah 7.31. They would be marked with a pole or a pillar or some other symbol that indicated this was an acceptable spot on which to worship Baal. The worship of Baal was sexually centered and particularly exhibitionist. Baal and Asherah were regarded as voyeur deities, whose own libidos were excited by viewing orgiastic rites or sacrificial acts of special brutality and bloodletting. The raised platform on a hill was intended to let the gods see more clearly. Prescribed worship involves several things. It involves sacrifices, animal or grain offerings usually. It involved religious prostitution, always, Ritual prostitution of both sexes was common in the worship of Baal. They even had a recognized homosexual guild in their temples. 
Why was this so much a part of their worship? Because Canaanite religion at its heart was a reflection of its gods. And the gods were grossly sensual and perverse and their activity centered in sexual activity. Baal impregnated Asherah in their myths and the rainfall that comes down upon the earth was attributed to Baal and it was thought to represent his semen falling to earth to fertilize and impregnate the earth. The cultic prostitutes were merely helping the worshipers act out the drama. The worship of Baal occasionally involved child sacrifice. Jeremiah 19 verses 4 and 5, we learn of that. We don't know why they sacrificed their children. There are two probabilities. One of them is out of sheer superstition, like the couple I mentioned last week in India who were arrested for sacrificing their children, their nine and seven-year-old boys, in order to please their gods. So sometimes it's just, it's just superstition. But other times, I'm convinced, it was for convenience. It served, in a sense, the same, person, the same purpose that abortion serves today. We don't need another kid. It's only going to be in the way. And here's a way we can legitimately dispose of it. Amazingly, there are still Baal aficionados even today. There's even a website for Baal. So this was the primary temptation to idolatry to the people of God in the Old Testament. And it continues through the rest of the Old Testament. In David, during David's reign, there's very little record of idolatry. But after his death, the influence of idolatry, and particularly of Baal, grew dramatically. Turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 11. Verse 5. Let's start at verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, another name for Molech, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Incredible. The son of David, a man after God's own heart. Upon Solomon's death, as you know, the kingdom of Israel was divided. In the northern part of Israel, in the northern ten tribes, Jeroboam, the first king of the north, set up golden calves at Dan and Bethel. It was an effort to keep the northern ten tribes from going to Jerusalem and therefore to consolidate his power. These golden calves were either images of the Canaanite deities or possibly symbols of their presence in much the same way that the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence. But let's think for a moment about the southern kingdom. In the southern kingdom of Judah, under Solomon's son Rehoboam, it was no better. Look at 1 Kings 14. 1 Kings 14, verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. He was 40 year old, 41 years old when he became king. Reigned for 17 years. Verse 22. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy more than all their fathers had done with the sins which they had committed. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, 
and Asherim on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had dispossessed from before them. Incredible. This is David's grandson. If you really want to see how it had permeated the land of Judah, turn to 2 Kings for a moment. 2 Kings 23. Here's how bad it got. 2 Kings 23, verse 4. Under Josiah, a revival takes place. But notice what Josiah had to deal with. Notice what had happened in Judah. The king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, this is verse 4 of 2 Kings 23, and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for Asherah and for all the host of heaven. And he burns them outside of Jerusalem. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah, even in the area surrounding Jerusalem. They burn incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations and all the host of heaven. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. Verse 7, he also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes which were in the house of the Lord. Look at verse 10. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Molech. In other words, child sacrifice was happening in Israel. He did away with the horses which the kings of Judah had given to the son at the entrance of the house of the Lord. Verse 12, the altars which were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he broke down. You get the idea? Idolatry by this time had absolutely permeated the people of God. All of Israel's prophets spoke against the idolatry. And in the end, it was primarily Israel's idolatry that led to her downfall at the hands of God. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Why? Read 1 Kings 17, verse 7 and following. It was because of idolatry. The southern kingdom, Judah, fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Again, the primary reason given is her idolatry. 2 Kings 23, verses 26 and 27. It was only after 70 years of Babylonian captivity that Judah was permanently broken of her desire for Baal. But that isn't where the story of idolatry ends in Scripture. Because, of course, the Greeks and the Romans... And the cultures throughout the rest of human history have continued to be drunk with idolatry. And in New Testament times, the Greeks and the Romans who came to faith in Christ were easily tempted to be drawn back into the idolatry that they had known before Christ and which permeated their cultures. Now, why do I take the time to show you all of that? And there's so much more, obviously, that could be shown. That's a brief sketch of the history of idolatry among the people of God. Do you understand why this is so crucial? If the Old Testament people of God were so easily influenced by the gods around them, and if New Testament believers living among pagan idolaters were drawn toward that worship, then what kind of arrogance would lead us to conclude that we are immune 
from the gods of our culture. Some Christians are tempted to say, okay, so idolatry is an issue in the world at large and perhaps even here in America, but you can't be saying that people who claim to be Christians worship idols, can you? Listen, the biblical data makes it clear that idolatry is not just a problem out there beyond the doors of the church. In fact, almost all of the passages about idolatry I just showed you, and many, many others, almost all of the passages about idolatry in the Scripture address their influence on the people of God. In his excellent book, No God But God, Oz Guinness writes, in both the Old and New Testaments, idolatry is clearly the supreme threat to faith because it grows from the deepest desires and motivations of the human heart and thus is a barrier to repentance, lordship, and the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord our God and tolerate no third party or rival allegiance in our hearts, end quote. You understand that there is a serious danger of God's people embracing idols? There is a serious danger of you and of me embracing idols. You see, the idolatry the Scripture addresses, as we will see in the coming weeks, is not merely that of people falling down in front of a carved piece of wood or metal. It takes a lot of different forms. And the real problem of idolatry are those much more insidious forms, those much more cultured and educated and unobvious forms. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. If you doubt me, listen to the Apostle John. Listen to how he concludes his first epistle. After this wonderful letter meant to give the people of God confidence in their faith in Christ, he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, he's just said, let's go back to verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, it's a term of endearment. He's saying, listen, you whom I love, you who have confessed Christ as Savior and Lord, little children, guard yourselves from idols. The problem is not stuck in the ancient past. The problem is here in America, in our world, in our city, in our church, and in our hearts. Paul said the same thing to the Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As he talks about the issues of spiritual, or excuse me, of Christian liberty, and he warns them to avoid Israel's mistakes in the wilderness wanderings, not to run their liberty out to the edge, not to flirt with disaster. He mentions idolatry. And then he turns to that subject in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee, run from idolatry. Next week, if the Lord wills, we'll look at the many different forms idolatry takes. And you will see why this is a very apt and appropriate warning. While you and I may never... I hope in God's goodness and grace we'll never 
fall down before some piece of wood or some block of stone. We are every bit as susceptible to idolatry as anyone who has ever lived. Because our hearts, as John Calvin said, are factories of idols. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series, Tear Down Every Idol. Tom will have part three for you on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.